Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. everybody welcome to the neglected podcast my name is nick schultz and today we have a very special guest her majesty giovanna javis say hello to everybody hi everybody i'm giovanna and we've known each other for ever since i came to savannah for about five and a half years i believe and interestingly enough the first four years i thought your last name was pronounced uh, javis and it wasn't until last year that I believe you told me it was Javis. <laughs> that finally like snaps. Yeah. Yeah. I think you finally went off on me. We're about to hit me and we were good <laughs> friends and didn't know how to pronounce your last name. Yeah. So Javana's is pretty amazing. She was also one of the integral people when I was working at the church. She was like superstar volunteer helping out with all the kids stuff and everything. Mm-hmm. Changing poopy diapers and disciplining children and... <laughs> putting the foot down and all that kind of stuff so been hanging out a long time good friends with my wife as well and Giovanna is you're actually one of the reasons why this podcast and the neglected even got started would you say that's true um I would say I heard your idea and I said yes (laughs) so you just agreed to it no and I said I wanted to do it like but I invited myself but the whole reason that we you, my wife, and stuff even got to start talking is because of experiences that we've had that led up to us doing something like this, mm-hmm. which would be, uh, if you don't know, Giovanna actually has been with me to Rwanda twice mm-hmm. on uh, mission trips. I've led about, what, like four or five trips now. Uh, my wife's been on a couple, and we've went there, learned a lot about racial reconciliation and stuff there. And we had already been having conversations about race here, in our in our culture, our community, um, in the mm. church, and then going over there and having that kind of experience and and understanding what kind of forgiveness happened over there, what it took and it still takes to have racial reconciliation was just kind of mind blowing. And then really the question for us was, how in the world do you do something like that here in Savannah or here in America? And that's where a lot of conversations got started. And we'll talk about Rwanda in a second. But one of the un- other interesting things that I want to get into is, is that you gave me a phone call one day. Yeah. And I think it was just a, maybe a couple weeks after we came back from our team trip in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And that, that very first one that we came back from, uh, my wife sent us a message. And I think that was when Ferguson was happening. Yes. And she goes, hey, I know what you guys are experiencing in Rwanda. And it's really powerful. And you're and." you're going to be really probably upset and it's going to be hard for you when you come back to Savannah because of what's been going on in Ferguson because we didn't know a whole lot about it. Yeah. And she warned us about that. And we got back and, you know, that combined with just some other stuff learning over there, some personal things you were going through. You gave me a phone call and I just kind of want to, boom, get right into it and, yeah. and why you did that and and what you were feeling during that time. Well, I will say that... It was interesting being in Rwanda when that happened because there is so much of, there's just such a contrast. So 
in the U.S., there's such a mentality of, well, it's in the past, get over it. And then when things like Ferguson, things like Charlottesville happen, it's like, no, it's not. Like, there's clearly something still happening. Versus the first time going to Rwanda and seeing this almost relentless, just relentless attitude towards not forgetting. I mean, we didn't go to the memorials the first time, but just going to their big memorial, the big genocide memorial and listening to their stories and listening to the fact that for them, this is not something that they will ever forget, that they have unified, but they will not forget their genocide. They will not forget what happened. There's a hundred days where they go back. And I think being there and then coming back home, that was such a shock. And what led to the phone call was seeing so many churches, which I think they meant well, but seeing so many churches just say, we denounce racism. And seeing people that I go to church with say such harsh things about other people, about black people, but then being in congregation with them and they're nice to me. And it was just such a, and that, and that will go into something that I'm sure we'll talk about later, just about like, I guess the quote unquote type of black person I am, but it was, it was really difficult. Like, like, how are you posting all these things about, well, black people shouldn't be this way and they shouldn't run and they shouldn't this and they shouldn't that. And then almost, it sounds like you don't like black people, but then you're kind to me. And then you post, you know, then you have churches posting like we denounce it, but there's nothing. I think that I was moved by the fact that there's nothing coming from the pulpit that like address the actual issue, which in Rwanda, it really woke me up to the fact that to me, it's a layered issue, but to me, the biggest issue is our trying not to remember, right. our trying to force healing when we haven't done the beginning part. And being in a place that has done all the steps, that's done over 20 years worth of work, and then coming back to a place that's like, ah, oh, there's no elephant in the room. That was just really hard. So I, I called you because I was like, I don't know what to do with all these things. And you being who you are. Um, Which is what? The fixer. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> You're the fixer. It's okay. Um, I think that we've learned in our group about like lamenting and stitching in it. And that's just not your jam. But, and I don't have, I didn't have a problem with that. I think that I called knowing <laughs> that you were going to have a solution to it because I think, I know for a fact that in that moment I was just overwhelmed by, I guess in my mind, the contradiction of here are these people who are friends with me, who I worship with, who I serve with, and they're saying such harsh things about another race, such ignorant things, but they're just so to my face nice. That they might not even realize it's harsh. Yes. And I don't think they they even knew that it was hurting me. Right. But it was hurting me to see these things on Facebook and then sit and worship with them. And it was that feeling of like, I don't know what to do with this because I just came back from this trip where I yeah. learned what real forgiveness and healing is. And now I'm here. And now these things are being posted and I'm just hurt and I didn't know what to do with it. So I ended up calling you and your solution was we well, should do I a video was the first solution. Well, I think that's where everything got started because mm -hmm. for me it was... It wasn't the first time we've talked about this. You've yeah. come into our house. You've talked to myself and my wife, and we've mm -hmm. talked about racial issues, what it's like for you, and things that you've experienced. But that might, I don't think that was like, 
that wasn't the first time we talked no. about that. <clears throat> but I, I was, yeah. but I understood it was at this point of for for me it was okay something has to be done and we have the power to do something. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's some life-changing decision that has to happen right now, but what can actually be done? Like you said, whatever, I'm the fixer or something yeah. like that. I, I'm looking for a solution or something to do. It's, I don't like just talking about stuff yeah. over and over again. It's okay to, and I, but how do we move forward and mm -hmm. not necessarily fix something, but mm -hmm. bring awareness to it. And I'm all about the conversation. Yeah. Like I can't stand when people can't have conversations about stuff. If you know, you're pro-abortion or you're anti-abortion or you're mm -hmm. way left side, way right side in politics. And like, I can never be like, how can you not have conversations with people? That's yeah. pretty much the problem was when people don't get into a room, they don't open their home and they mm -hmm. interact with people that are different than them and they might have opinions about. So that's where it all got started. And yeah, my original idea was like, oh, let's just put a video out on mm -hmm. social media interviewing you and talking about this stuff. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and that's really good for like a, maybe a one-time thing, but that wasn't like a longevity thing. And we never even really did it because we weren't sure yeah. how mm -hmm. it all come together and didn't want us to just be like, oh, here's a hot topic thing. Let's put it out there. You know, we feel good about ourselves as well and let's move on. So it came to a point of like, what can we do personally? For me, yeah. it's always bringing it back to the personal sense. Yeah. If we want other people to hear about this or have them feel it and see change, we have to change too and be willing to go through a process to do that. And that's where we came up with having a small group meet in our home of racially diverse people mm -hmm. talking about you know our faith, but also going through a racial reconciliation process and hearing from each other over what, like 10 weeks. Yeah. And, you know, using this, this curriculum called Be the Bridge that got started. And that's what we did. And it eventually transformed into, you know, slowly the neglected and having something like this. But can you explain how um, Be the Bridge came about and what that actually meant to you to have um, those conversations in mm -hmm. somebody's home with a diverse group of people and be able to share some of the stuff you're talking about now, but face to face with people and see how that's affected people of different races? Yeah, no. So, I mean, we met and we talked about um, having these conversations and shout out to your wife because she was the one that just said, let's not recreate the wheel. Let's not come up with our own conversations. Let's use this curriculum, which I'd heard of too, um, just through attending if gatherings, which you can watch online. Um, and so Be the Bridge is a, is a great thing that has already been built. It's a study. Um, and so we decided to use it. So the first time we met, it was just more of like, do we want to talk about this and, and hearing from people? So I think we did that like twice. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up just settling on, let's just do the Be the Bridge. Let's walk through this study. Um, I thought that the most amazing thing that came out of it for me was that it's just the power of story. I think that that's what a lot of us um, don't make time for because everybody has a story um, and stories are important. And it's so important not to assume that you understand someone else's perspective. So what is it like to be Hispanic right now? What is it like to be Caucasian right now? What is it like to be black right now? Um, 
And to be able to sit in a room with people and to our benefit, like we knew some of us already knew each other, but just to sit in a room and talk about and walk through these prompts. And so I'm not going to be able to remember exactly, but like each week was something else that we talked about awareness. And then we moved through lament and we moved through um, forgiveness and reconciliation and reparations. And so walking through those topics and hearing everybody's perspective, um, for me, it was just amazing. And what I love that came out of it and what I have to give you credit for is that you are a really big proponent and not depending on hearing things from leadership that, and not depending on hearing things from the pulpit. Because I think that when you've been in the church for so long, you desire to see your leaders do something when really you could do it. And I think that that was the great thing that came out of it is I felt like by the end of it, each of us walked away with, here's something we could actually do with the gifts we've been given, with our personalities, with our stories, what we've learned from this study. What are the ways that we can engage with people who might not be aware or who are aware and don't know what to do, but let's not depend on our mayor, our councilman, our president, our pastor to do it. Let's do this from the bottom up. And I thought that that was the best thing that came out of it to me, because I think that making things more practical for people, I think that's where most people are, is they see that there's an issue, but like, what do I do with this? I see it. I know people are hurting, but what do I do with it? So I felt like that was the great thing that came out of Be The Bridge. Yeah. And I think that's the hard about behind the neglected and what we're trying to do here is just give mm -hmm. a voice to people who, <clears throat> excuse me, are neglected in some way in our in our community, in the church, in the country, whatever it is, like they have a story to tell that other people can hear and be like, you know what, I can engage in their story too. It's like, just because I'm different or I have an opinion about them, it's okay even to like have prejudices and not like somebody, but just to be able to get to the point where you can admit it to yourself and say, I need to go have conversations and have these different people than me in my life, yeah. whether I think they're a friend or not. Like you said, people were friends in our group. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're having conversations like that yeah. with your friends. But you talked about telling telling uh, people, telling their stories. Let's go back a little bit to your story mm -hmm. about how you grew up, kind of your background with, with your parents and your family and what that was like as a young black woman and mm -hmm. uh, where you grew up and, and kind of some of the things you experienced. Yeah, and so I, um, grew up here mainly. Um, my dad was military, but there was a lot more moving around prior to me and my sister being born. Um, and so I grew up in Savannah. Uh, I have parents that were together, but um, I grew up with an alcoholic mom, which for me, I didn't have that recognition that my mom was an alcoholic until I was older. Just because of the way the movies portray alcoholism, like you think that the person's like drunk and stumbling around and like not working. My mom was right. a, like she worked because she was super functional, but she wasn't like super present in in my life. Um, so a lot of my influence came from my dad. My dad was a more present parent. And our parents really wanted for me and my sister, um, just education was a big thing. And I think that was a big thing like for most, I'm in my 30s. So for most of us growing up, like education, go to college, that thing. Um, so I ended up going to the small private school. And in my class, I want to say, 
consistently there was three black people and one of them was me. There weren't a lot of black people in my school. And and so I grew up really in to me in that weird fashion of I wasn't black enough for the black community. So I went I attended an African American church growing up with my dad. And so to them it was that whole you talk white. You sound white. Um and for white people I think I became the black person that people were comfortable with. So hold on. When you when you say you talk white mm-hmm. and somebody says something like that, is it the tone and the delivery of the words? Is it the actual words you're using? Like explain kind of that nuance. I think that for people, I don't know if this is everywhere, but I know down south here, it is this concept of like black people are supposed to sound a certain way. They're supposed to sound like they do in the rap videos and whatever. And so I've always been, I mean, I think I had someone specifically tell me that it's because like I pronounce words and I speak proper and so you sound white. But I don't think, and I mean, I've even heard that from white people. And I don't think that people have the recognition that, that that's not a compliment. Like in a way, what you're saying is that sounding, I guess, quote unquote, intelligent is for white people. So you're getting backhanded compliments about, yeah. like, hey, you're very articulate and well-spoken. Yeah. And for, I'm not going to say it's because you're black, but it's just. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, I can even think of a time um, I was going for a job and I had a friend tell me, it was at a restaurant, and I had a friend say, you know, I told my boss about you, just call up here. And so I called and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to come up there. I don't know what time it was like. I was like, I'm going to come up there at like one and I'll meet you. You know, to and he's like, yeah, you have the job. Just come up here and meet me. So I get off the phone and I go there, and the guy is like, oh no, I don't have any positions open. Like I already, I already hired somebody. I'm thinking in my head it's me, but then I like walk away and I left. And then he called me back and he's like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I just sent you away. And I think I knew instantly, like wow. my voice doesn't match what I look like. Like most people, and I've heard that before. Like oh, when I heard Javana and then I heard you talk. I'm confused. And I'm like, I know what you're trying to say in a roundabout way is that like, I didn't think you would be black. And I think that's just this unfair narrative that we've built that if you sound a certain way, or if you sound articulate, like you were saying, that only belongs to white people. But I don't think, so something we talked about in Me the Bridge is I like to make a distinction before between racist and ignorant. I I think we use the word racist a little too loosely, but I think that, so much of that is ignorance. Mm-hmm. I think that people don't have a recognition of what they're saying. And I think the times I've called people out on it, like they've been thrown off because I'm like, so what are you saying? You're saying that intelligence only belongs to white people? And they're like, no, oh no, 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 no. I'm trying to compliment you. But I don't think there's that recognition that what they're saying is hurtful. It's such a deep, like within somebody's, mm-hmm. their experience growing up and something like that too. We've talked about where it's just, it's very nice of you to not say racist and say ignorant, but you know a lot of people are that way. It's yeah. just because their parents are like that, their grandparents were like that, and they're not purposely trying to say something hurtful because you're a different skin color, but like that's how people around me talk mm-hmm. to black people sometimes. Yeah. And it's like a backhanded compliment. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's it's tough, I would think, to hear that sometimes. Cause even now, like now that we've had conversations and you know, being able to talk with a lot of my other black friends, like when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. 
you notice that a whole lot more and mm -hmm. you want to correct it. But like you said, there's a lot of ignorance there. So it's gently, how do you have a conversation after somebody says that? Yeah. Because you could either blow it off mm -hmm. and just be like, well, whatever, they're, that's just the way they are. Or, you know, do you take that stance of saying, hey, I'm not going to come at you with this. Yeah. But just, just so you know, as a, as a black woman right here, this is how that comes off to me. Mm -hmm. Is that easy to do? Or is that like you have to have the energy that day or in that moment to do that? Or what's that like to have those instances happen and maybe even try to educate someone in that moment? I would say now I feel like I have the tools to have those conversations. I would say that there has been phases. I think growing up when I was younger, so let's say like before 20s, it was a really hurtful thing. I think I... I know looking back on it, I never felt like I was enough. Like I never felt black enough. Like I felt like I'm not black enough. Like there's something wrong with me. Like I understood my culture. I grew up with, with family that educated me on it, but I didn't feel black enough because I wasn't the standard. Um, but then even on the other end, like I didn't feel good enough because I wasn't white. And so there was like, I think there was a lot of confusion for me. And then in my 20s, that was the era of just like rage <laughs> <laughs> of like, I would just smart off at the mouth of like, and that's not appropriate either. I don't think either response of like beating yourself up. But then it was the, the snappy comebacks of like, oh, oh, go back to Africa. Well, it wasn't a cruise ship. Didn't want to be here. Like it was just being rude. Mm. Um, and that's not helpful either, but I feel like now, late 20s to 30s, like I have that more of a recognition that that this is generating from somewhere else. And if you've come at someone like that, you're not going to produce a helpful conversation. And so saying kind of like what you said, instead of saying like, oh, what are you trying to say? Saying something like, hey, that was hurtful to me. And I know, and I don't think that was your intention. So let me explain to you why that might be hurtful. And so I think that that I would say that now is not necessarily an energy thing because I do care about other people. Like yeah. you know me and anybody who does know me knows I'm like other centered. So it that was that's not an energy thing. It's more of a not shying away from the conversation. Yeah, it's really hard to have a conversation when either the one offended or the mm -hmm. one that's doing the offending gets defensive mm -hmm. or gets overly offended yeah and then conversation never happens mm -hmm. it's either i'm hurt i'm really angry and you know screw you forget it it's yeah. over or you're not worth the time or, and that's a lot of the problem is that yeah. people don't have healthy ways to control emotions whether it's in person on social media around people that drive them crazy or have different opinions and conversations don't happen therefore yeah. change in people never happens because it's it's really hard yeah it's really hard to do that i do want to talk about you know you mentioned your early 20s rage mm -hmm. and just kind of about <laughs> at least what happened for you family-wise experience with your with your father and then mm -hmm. with your mother and like mm -hmm. how that kind of um not necessarily maybe it was a, a racial thing that happened but it was a very emotional mm -hmm. kind of family thing that you know combined with all this stuff what you were going through during that time yeah and so, like I said, like I was really close um, with my dad, big daddy's girl. Um, I'm trying to think. So 2011. Um, 
so in like 2010, so that was nine years ago. Um, I'm trying to think of like ages. So I was 23, maybe about to be 24. Um, my dad, who like never been sick ever, um, had a spot in his lung and had to go to the doctor and came back and it was cancer. And that was really tough because again, maybe I've been overly influenced by movies, but again, <laughs> you know, you hear cancer and you think like that they're going to be like throwing up all the time and stuff like that. So um, he started radiation and he started chemo and he lost his hair and it grew back and he never really got sick, sick, but anyway, he really thought that it was going to be okay. Um, and that he was going to make it. And then in 2011, close to Easter is when he made a turn. Um, his lung collapsed at the house. Um, they resuscitated him. It was, I would say that was one of the most traumatic experiences for me. Um, watching somebody that you love, that you admire, that's the rock and pillar of your family suffer. I think that was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to watch. Just watching him not be able to breathe, watching him be tubed, watching him go from super able and the one that did everything to being the one that is with a walker and there's a breathing machine in the house. And um, not to be gross, but like you can't go to the bathroom. So I'm having to dump out his pee. I'm having to bring him food. Um, and something that I would say that's so interesting when I look back is that I was, at that point, I wasn't who I am now because while that was happening, I was like going to school. I was trying to graduate um, with my bachelor's. And so I would, and I think me and my sister just talked about this. I would go to class and then come home and then bring him food. And so, and take exams and stay up with that breathing machine. And I slept on the couch. And so it was really wild and i graduated in may um and my dad made it two more days and then he passed he passed away um wow may 9th of 2011 it's tomorrow wow yep wow and so tomorrow will be if i'm doing math eight right eight eight years um and it was crazy because I was the first person in my friend group to lose a parent. And so I didn't know how to grieve correctly. And so I didn't grieve correctly. Like I did all the things to not think, to not do. Um, I don't think I grieved until like there were six months after. But I distinctly remember, and I don't want to speak for all Black families, but I will say for my particular Black family, I distinctly remember like at the funeral, I could not cry. I think I was just so like out of it. Um, I got compliments in the black church for like holding it together or mm -hmm. something. They're like, you're so strong. You didn't even cry. Like you held it together. Wow. And I think that that message got like seeped into my brain. Cause I think that that's a black culture thing. It's like, we keep it together, you know? And it wasn't, I didn't cry for that reason. I just couldn't. Yeah. Um, and then a year later, um, I'm speeding past this, not intentionally, but, um, and then a year later, my mom had a stroke and 
it was one of those things I remember like asking God, like, I, I can't, I can't not have any parents. Like I'm 25. I can't have like no parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and she made it through, but that was an, that was a crazy experience because it was one of those things of like, they sent her home with us after being in the hospital for a month and they were like, she's going to have a disability, but like, we don't really know what it's going to be. Like maybe she'll never speak again. Maybe she will. I will say that her, like as of now, um, her disability is more in speech. So she has mixed aphasia, which is essentially means that she speaks in three to five word sentences. Hmm. Um, and sometimes she will mix up her words and sometimes she won't understand what you mean. But like physically able, can walk, can't, but she can't drive because of a cut vision field. So 20s was like a very crazy era um, of just a lot of shifting family things. And I think my sister and I went from, I think I had the biggest change because Janae's always been kind of like even keel. My sister's like, the even kill person. Um, but I went from like the overly emotional one to the one that had to deal because there's not much, there's not much room to grieve. I think that even like a, a week after my dad's funeral, I went back to work. And while my mom was in the hospital, I was at work. And I think that I worked at great jobs that probably would have let me had space, but there's not a lot of space to grieve. And I think that I had support in the church, but I think there's also that almost that mentality as a Christian of like, you should be joyful. He's no longer in pain, mm-hmm. you know, um, and learning how to do both. I don't, I don't think I learned how to do both until recently that I can both be joyful, but then I can also be sad. Um, and the same with mom is like, hey, she's still with you. Right. Always look at the positives. That yeah, no, nothing else should affect you as long as you know. Look, God's there's will some be done, stuff. and it's like, but I'm still mad and sad, and and I am joyful, but I'm feeling all the things. So I think that 20s was a crazy era for me, because um, then in the midst of that, I was having dental surgeries. Like I don't know, I don't know what it's like. Um, well, I don't know. All this is really interesting to me because, you know, I I tried to get you to go on my team to Rwanda, mm-hmm. either you know one or two years in a row, and mm-hmm. you kept saying no. Yeah. But there's always somebody each year that I know needs to go on this trip yeah. because of what they're gonna experience, what they are experiencing, have experienced, and it's gonna blow their their mind when they go over to Rwanda because of the things that they're gonna encounter there. Yeah. A lot because of what they've experienced here in America that, mm-hmm. like you said, that, that healing, understand forgiveness, even racial stuff mm-hmm. that Man, you cannot experience that here, but over there, it's it's just life altering. Yeah. And so you were one of those people because you know all the stuff that you just shared. You know, my family's known that. Yeah. And so I was trying trying to get you over there because taking your childhood experiences on on race, what happened with your with your father, and then you know, really losing part of your mother too. You know, not all being there like she was, and then going over to Rwanda experiencing. They had genocide. There's mm-hmm. people over there that are your age, mm-hmm. your peers, that don't have parents mm-hmm. because they lost them in the genocide or their parents, you know, their father was a perpetrator in the genocide. So they're in prison or gone or, you know, maybe they are still living in the village, but it's, it's a crazy kind of relationship they have with them. So going over there and seeing 
from your eyes, what what was that like? Um, you know, whether it's first, second time, it doesn't matter, but just like, what's that been like to go over there and learn those things based on what your life experience has been with race and kind of your family stuff? So I'll speak to the race thing first and then the family thing. So the first time going was so fascinating because I think, you know, just because living in a Western bubble, you assume everybody knows. And we had these interesting conversations with Rwandans and so like getting there and it being like, where are you from? All the origin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, where are you from? Uh-huh. And it's like, well, from America. <laughs> That's not what they want to know. No. And they know where? you're from America. They're like, where are you from? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. They're like, where are you from in Africa? Where yeah, are you yeah. from? Yeah. And they're like, I don't know. And it was so crazy just for them. They couldn't imagine not knowing. Right. Like they were wanted. Like they can't imagine not knowing. And to have those conversations of like, well, do you understand what happened with African-Americans? And I think that being able to have those conversations with them of just how the culture was stripped from my ancestors of like, yes, slavery was a thing and yes, they were brought here, but they were stripped of where they came from. And so it's not as if they could pass that down to their children and pass down to their children, their children. But then there was that sweet moment of they're like, it's okay, you're Rwandan. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's probably not accurate because slaves didn't come from Rwanda. You were adopted. But it was super sweet because they're like, you know, you look Rwandan. I and mean, the second time we went, like being in the Ethiopian airport and them speaking to me in their language and me being like, oh, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and they're like, what? Where are you from? From America. No, where are you from? <laughs> and so it's just, it was, it, it's so interesting. And, and I think it felt like, I mean, as lame as it sounds, like it felt like home. Like I think that was the first time I've ever been the majority. And that's so fun. Uh, I'm sorry, that sounds weird, but it was no, fun. It's, um, well, interestingly enough, I love going over there too, because I love being different. Yeah. Like I love being the minority over there and just... But the hard thing is I'm not treated badly for yeah. being the minority. So it's a completely different experience. Like, oh, I get to be the minority over in Rwanda. Well, it's, hey, we're going to take care of you. And yeah. you are so lovely and different. And mm-hmm. we we want to get to know you. So it's, it's a lot different than being the minority in America. You're put up on a almost like a pedestal and yeah. compared to here. So I, I do want to make that distinction. Yeah. <laughs> that it's much easier for me. Yeah. No, I thought that was so, is so I don't know. It just felt like. And they're so inviting anyway. I think Rwandans are just the most inviting people. Um, So race-wise, it was was amazing to have those discussions and to go deep and explain to them things. And because I think for them, they have this image of America being like this promised land and like a land of opportunities. And we do have opportunities and I don't ever want to take that away from America. But I think... For them, they don't have as much of a recognition of like the racial turmoil of the difficulty that an African-American might feel. And I think that for me too, like just being there, there, it awoke in me that there is a yearning to know. Like I, I do wish I knew. I mean, eventually maybe I will do like an ancestry or DNA thing, but there is that yearning to connect because learning just about their culture and their dances. And I think even 
seeing the similarities, like Africa time is a real thing. Like they start when they start and it goes as long as it goes. And seeing just like the inspiration of dance and just those things. I think that that was so life-giving to me. And then just having, you know, just like those educational moments was fun. Yeah, it's interesting um, interacting with people from other countries and, you know, why people would come over to America. Because a lot of time it is to assume that, mm-hmm. hey, you welcome everybody that's different race, different culture, and mm-hmm. you love everybody and you want them all there. And there's sometimes a this false assumption that that means you really are welcomed by everybody yeah. that's different than you and you and you feel that. And there's not there's not a whole lot of truth to that sometimes where it's like, yes, Technically, people are welcome here, but there's there ain't no law that says that you have to treat them yeah. a certain way and you have to to love them a certain way. And that's that's the hard thing to explain sometimes. It's like, man, we are hurt and broken over mm-hmm. here. And I know it's looked at as the the promised land of hope to go to, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of people in pain here, even if they have a job and money and a family, like, man, people are hurt. Yeah. Real hurt. I will say family wise. Um, the first time I went, I got to, you told me that I was going to share um, my testimony. Um, and I had two routes I could go. I could either talk about family and my actual testimony of like coming back to faith, or I could talk about the struggle of getting there because that was, I mean, in the midst of trying to get there, like I was having surgeries. And well, let's also stuff. be clear that you'd never been on a plane. <laughs> You had never flown <laughs> at all. Yeah. And then you are going on a 24-hour <laughs> flight excursion on two different yeah. planes for eight hours there and then like a 30-hour one back. And so let I'm me tell you that my doctor- Pretty sure counselor. we had to drug you up just to get <laughs> no, you there. That, that was the thing. And my doctor and counselor both like, wait a second, what? Like, I'm like, yeah, I haven't been on a plane since I was a kid. And there's like over 24 hours of the travel. Let's do this thing. Um, and they're like, That's, that sounds like a horrible. Yeah. Um, it ended up being great. Like, but I did. Like, I think that first takeoff, I was like, ah. Um, you did all right. I did. No, I feel like I was pretty docile. You look like a crazy person. <laughs> like, if someone got bit by a rabid dog, you you had that look on your face. Like, yeah, that was super scary. about to foam at the mouth and shaking and uh, just gonna open the door. Like, can I open the door? Oh, make it off the yeah. Like, eleven hours. That was tough. I mm-hmm. didn't have ankles. That was scary. I didn't know you were supposed to walk around. Nobody told me the protocol. I'm pretty points. sure in the team training, I went over all that stuff. You just mm. checked out. <laughs> yeah, no, because I was like super anxious. Yeah, I forgot about that part. Yep. Now I've been on a plane twice and it's been to Rwanda both times. So you can go anywhere now. Anyway, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I can do I can do anything. <laughs> um, but um, so I, share, I ended up sharing um, my testimony and talking about the stuff I just shared about things that happened with my dad things that happened with my mom. And I know this is an internal thing in me, but like being there, I think the entire time I was thinking like they have it so much harder and I didn't want to share as if it was the same. I just wanted to share my testimony. And the most beautiful thing happened is that people who were orphans came up to me and they're like, I'm so sorry, we are orphans. Me and you, we're Mm -hmm. both orphans. And they like comforted me. And I was like, wow, what beautiful hearts they have 
that for them it it's not a competition and not saying that that it's like uh that's something that all people do but for them it wasn't a competition of like well i lost my parents to genocide or right. but it was very much like they saw that as a connection point with me and just even after leaving just on whatsapp like how's your mom how's her healing progress yeah. like how are you how are you feeling and for them and that i think that was just such a sweet moment for me to just be able to be there to be around people who had who know the feeling of not having a parent um and to just have them their response to be that i want to love you in this and that i want i want you to know that you're not alone that was just to me that was just such a lesson and like what does it look like to just build a connection with other people i feel like they do that well i mean i can't speak for all wandas i can speak for the 50 that we met and it was just a sweet and tender moment of being able to share my story and the response being love from them well that's the power about sharing your story and your experience mm -hmm. but also being present and willing to hear mm -hmm. someone else's what you can learn and it's not a competition mm -hmm. or sh or well, they have it a lot worse than I do, or mm -hmm. this person's not going to understand. Like, you don't realize how strong that is if you're willing to take the time to be in that moment mm -hmm. and listen in what you have to offer. And that's a lot of the reason why we go over there. It's just offering yourself and what you've experienced and being open to what someone else has experienced. And you learn way more from each other by taking the time to do that when you're like, oh, well, they yeah, genocide. They have yeah. it way worse than I do. Yeah. But that is super impactful that you would take two weeks out of your life to get all that money, to go on a plane for the first time ever, yeah. suffer through all that, to go over there just to say, this is what I've been through mm -hmm. and I want to share with you and I want to hear what you've been through. Like that's yeah. crazy powerful. And that's you know what we're hoping to do with, with neglected stuff as well. It's just like take the time to listen to someone's story that's different and there might be more similarities than you thought there were yeah. in the first place. So. To me, it was really cool. Love Rwanda. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's like the greatest place to learn mm -hmm. forgiveness, reconciliation and hope. And yeah, I feel like the second time we went, I was just blown away by Pastor Anastas and just, I mean, like the Holy Spirit was just like working on him over time to like, I need to tell these people what forgiveness really is like. Because, I mean, we did the trip different the second time. So we went to the memorials first. And what, wow, like my brain was just like, whoa. Just the fact that the memorials are, like they they haven't changed it. The doors still have the bullet holes. The bodies, like the bones are there. And I think that it was just such a like, uh and I think that like it battled with my Western brain because my Western brain was like, ooh, you should fix this. Yeah, that's yes. where we went to right there. So mm -hmm. they have a they have a church memorial that uh, producer Quinn just put up on the, the yeah. screen there. But you literally go to a church where it was the safe haven mm -hmm. and you you were not allowed to kill people in a church even during time of genocide or whatever. That you're supposed to be allowed to be safe there. And you can actually go there today. <clears throat> excuse me and you can go in the church they have all the clothes of the people that were murdered there all the blood stains are on the actual clothes they wore it's not behind glass it's just sitting on the pews as you walk through there shrapnel holes everything mm -hmm. where they took children and beat them against the brick walls and 
all that kind of stuff. You walk in there and and feel that, you know. It's raw. And it's, you know, hopefully people do it too, where it's not like an attempt for like this kind of dark tourism experience of yeah. like, oh, that's really sad and horrible and just leave and never think about it again. You mm -hmm. know, for us, it's it, we want to go in there and like, you need to experience this and where where are these people now and how they're healing and where they've come from. Because it's, it's a shame to go over there, experience something like that, and then come back here and not change yourself. Yeah. And then also give people an opportunity to change as well, saying, if, man, mm -hmm. if people can go from this yeah. to now 20-some years later to have a city and a country completely rebuilt and consider themselves one people and not even talk about their tribal differences and things mm -hmm. like that. Nothing's perfect. Yeah. Never will be. Mm -hmm. But to not allow that to affect you is just, I mean, it's an incredible thing to see it in person. Yeah. No, I think that that was so, I mean, I feel like the second time going was such a a raw experience. Because for me, it then turned into, okay, this is, this is important to the healing process. You cannot heal without there being a rawness. And then leaving those like leaving those memorials and then having those conversations with Anastas where he's talking about that forgiveness is a daily choice that it is hard work and the work that he had to do and the walk and and the work that he had to do alongside churches and and just like how the the country decided to handle i think that like the second time going really spurred on just said, no, we need to to do something. Right. Like we need to have a conversation because clearly I'm not I'm not gonna sit here and say that we have figured out exactly what's wrong with our city and with our country. But what I know for certain is pretending that it didn't happen and pretending it's in the past is not the solution. Being somewhere where there is this relentlessness of like, we're not going to forget. And we're not going to forget to the point where we're not going to make this pretty. We're going to stay in the rawness of it. We're not going to make this pretty. It wasn't pretty. It was hard. It was awful. People died. Families have been destroyed. Right. We refuse to act like it wasn't as bad as it was. I think that for me coming back when you had the conversation of like, okay, no, it's time to do something. Like we talked around, like, what are we gonna do? What's wrong with the culture? Like, what are we gonna do? Like, no, we need to do something. It needs to happen. Yeah, and I think doing something again is like, first it's internal mm -hmm. and it's not trying to fix everybody or say, you need to be like this. It's just, hey, can we identify mm -hmm. that there's a lot of veils up right now that yeah. people aren't being honest about um, how we view different different cultures, different races, um, even in even in the church, you know, there's a false sense of racial security. And yeah. hey, black people in the church might actually feel a little different than you do in a predominantly white church, and mm -hmm. don't ever talk about that. Mm -hmm. So just identifying these areas where hey, let's be okay to to talk about it, give a voice to it, so that there can be acknowledgement and some type of healing if it needs to take place. But a lot of times people don't want to do that. Yeah. And so we kind of transitioned to that a little bit of, help me understand from your perspective, because you said earlier, you, you've 
been in the African-American church, mm -hmm. grew up in that. Yes. But, you know, a lot of your church, current church experiences and for the past previous years have been in predominantly white churches. Yes. And either some of the differences or what that's like for you um, being being a black woman in a predominantly white church. Um, hmm. I, I don't, I think that the thing that is the, I wouldn't say the hardest, but I think the thing that's disheartening oftentimes in a church being the black person or becoming, I guess, the token or the pepper that's in the, the church is that I see that so many churches want diversity, but the way they go about it isn't the way that you achieve it. Like, I mean, I've been in leadership in churches and in the past, they, there's so much talk about like, well, we need to have diversity. We need to have diversity. We need to be welcoming. And the heart is in the right place, but the way you achieve diversity is having more voices at the table. Mm -hmm. A room full of Caucasian males is not going to be able to figure out how to connect with Asians, Hispanics, African-Americans, Indians. You, you can't. And if you're not, and I, I'm not proposing that you hire people just based off of their race or that you just like go, a, you know, grab a token off the street. But what I'm saying is that's been the thing that's been the disheartening thing is hearing the heart and the heart is in the right place, but the, the steps aren't happening. And even if it, you know, inviting them to the table, like something that we talked about at Be the Bridge and something that your family does really well is that everyone is invited. People are invited into your home and people are invited into your life. And I think that that's something that I've, that's disheartening for me is, and I'm not going to say all churches because I can't speak for all, but just even when I was visiting churches and trying to figure out where I was going to go, there seemed to be this like sprinkle of diversity and either it was championing like we're diverse or it's like, oh, we need more diversity. But then when I look at the pictures of your staff and I look at the pictures of like who your leaders are, I don't see it. Um, I think that that's the disheartening part. I would say that, I mean, I, it, I loved being a part of the African-American church. And I think that that is a question too. I'm not sure if I'm minority spaces, but for myself is thinking, well, should I just be in a church that's just the majority? And I don't think that's a, I think that's a question that people need to figure out for themselves. I know that for me, I don't want to be in a church that's all one thing. And I enjoy the church I grew up in. I mean, selfishly, I like getting out on time. I like that. <laughs> I like that aspect. I like that that we're not going to worship for four hours. I like that we're going to go home at some point. Um, so I don't know. I think that that's just always going to be the, the struggle point. Does but the African-American church struggle with diversity or wanting it as much as you would say the the white churches? I would say the church that I grew up in wasn't opposed to it, but I didn't see any m movement 
towards wanting it because I think that for that particular church and for some African-American churches, this is our opportunity to be ourselves right. and be together. So we're not going to be upset. I remember the first time a, a white family came, like it was like, ooh, <laughs> oh my goodness, look, it's a white family. <laughs> they sit with us and they came consistently and we were super pumped. Yeah. Like, I think every week it was like, are they going to come back? Oh goodness, they came back. Um, it was probably a family like yours that's just like, we're tired of majority, let's go to the black church. <laughs> <laughs> but like we, I, I wouldn't say, I don't think that there is a movement towards it. Like I can't speak, I don't want to ever like speak for I it, know. but I would say that most of the black churches that I'm, I'm aware of, that is for them. And I can speak for, and also going to, I visited a Korean church once. I think that that is the safe haven. Like this is where, we get to be ourselves and we get to speak our language and we get to be our culture. If someone else comes, cool, but we're not like making movement towards making it my more diverse. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things there. And I, I talk about this with our, our buddy Cornelius a lot too, mm -hmm. <clears throat> just about the church and the false, um, whether it's security or just that thing you tell yourself, it's like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're diverse. And there's a big difference in what you're diverse in. Yeah. It's like, yes, we can be diverse in a Sunday morning worship service. Mm -hmm. There are black people there. There are Latino people. There's some Asian people there. Like, yes, there we have a little bit of the the seasoning and that that yeah. that salt shaker over there. So we we feel diverse. But, yeah, you know, we've talked about it. you're looking at it. It's like that's a great feeling. But that mm -hmm. does not mean you're diverse in leadership. Yeah. Who's in charge or just having a voice in a, in a seat at the table or Am I being invited into mm -hmm. any of their smaller groups, their mm -hmm. their Bible studies, or their their things that aren't the the public stuff? Yeah, that's not on Sunday or not the big women's event or something like that. Am I personally mm -hmm. being asked about my life and my experience or invited into someone's home and life? And to me, that's the reflection of when diversity is going to be there. Yeah, when it doesn't happen on the grand stage mm -hmm. in front of everybody and we feel good about it, if it happens in people's homes and again it's that internal that personal thing like man i need to have diverse people in my life yeah that doesn't but that's that's different than like hey, i need to find the token black friend which yeah. i want you to talk about in a second mm. so that i can say whatever i want about black people yeah. and racial issues well javon is my friend now so yeah you know if a white cop shoots a unarmed black man i'm free to put out whatever statistics I want about um, black on black crime and mm -hmm. hey, this person was innocent. He had one hand up, the other hand was down. He mm -hmm. went here, went there and I can give all the facts, but because you're my friend or I think you're my friend, I can claim you as my friend yeah. so I can say whatever I want as opposed to this is a hurtful situation. Yeah. And there's certain things you don't need to say right now mm -hmm. that I could actually go talk to that black friend or hopefully more than one black friend saying, yeah. man, what is this like for you instead of me trying to justify something else or like mm -hmm. put something on right now? So. Mm -hmm.